This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know. Introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so. But each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. I must tell you the genesis of this week's episode because it is literally years in the making. I reached out to Rabbi Shalom Lipsker several years ago, and November 14th, 2019, we had the beginning of our conversation. We talked about his background, his life, how he built the community in Bal Harbor, which is essentially Miami, in Florida. And then we were going to transition to the next part of his life's work, which is the founding and directing of the Aleph Institute, which is this incredible organization helping Jews in the military, as well as Jews in prison, dealing with prison reform, criminal justice reform, and just an incredible array of services. We ran out of time. So I was working on getting Rabbi Lipsker for a second half of our interview, but it just kept not happening. He's extraordinarily busy, as you might imagine, given the scope of his work. And so finally, about four months later, which is now a year ago, I was planning to travel down in March of 2020 to Florida for a trip with a group of college students through my work at Moor. Spring break trip. We had an awesome group lined up and I arranged that our opening speaker would be Rabbi Lipsker at his synagogue called the Shul in Bal Harbor. And I would interview him about his work at Olive and that would be recorded and would serve as our second half of the interview and also as an opening activity for my student group. Well, as you might be able to guess at this point, that trip was canceled at the last minute because COVID hit. And actually, Miami, if you recall, was one of the first places that news of spread in the religious community, in the Jewish community, was beginning to merge. Of course, there was the first information before Purim coming out of New Rochelle in New York. But after Purim in Miami, Ellie Beer, the founder and director of Hatzalah, who I've also had on this program, was severely ill and hospitalized for a long time, having been in Miami at that period. And the day that we were supposed to have been arriving in Florida for our first speaker with the student group was actually a day that I got notice that Rabbi Lipsker himself had been hospitalized for COVID. And so the confluence was striking and people were praying for him all over the world. Thank God he recovered. And again, since then, been trying to make this up. And finally, almost a year later, now on midwinter break with my family, I'm heading back down to Florida and we made up to do the second half of our interview in person. And so you will hear in the second half, a different tone, a different sound profile, and it will be quite clear when we are transitioning. So this is one interview separated by 14 months or so, but a remarkable individual, very much worth waiting for. And with that, I remind you as always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Subscribe wherever you're listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Podcasts. Please let your friends know to do so as well. Email comments, questions, or sponsorships, Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. And now to our conversation with 
rabbi of the shul at Bal Harbor, and founder and director of the Olive Institute, Rabbi Shalom Lipsker. We are here with Shalom Bear Lipsker, rabbi of the shul at Bal Harbor down in Florida, as well as the founder of Olive, an incredible organization servicing incarcerated uh, members of the Jewish people, as well as military families. So much to, to talk about there. How are you, Rabbi? Thank God well. How are you? Amazing. Thank God. So let's take it from the top. We definitely have a real fascinating story here in terms of all the services that you've been propagating over your career. But uh, I imagine you didn't start out thinking you'd be doing all of that. So kind of what was the, the early genesis of your upbringing? Well, uh, my early genesis, I grew up born in Russia, grew up in Toronto, Canada, to a Chabad family. My mother's side, six generations Chabad, and my father, uh, an educator, and of course, Chabad. And my uh, education starting from high school was at Lubavitch Yeshiva in New York. And thereafter, 770, and thereafter in the Rebbe's Kolel, and thereafter on what is referred to as the Rebbe's mission, Shlichus, here in Miami, Florida, beginning with starting a school as uh, principal of the Oli Torah School, and then transitioning to starting the community here in Bell Harbor, starting the Olive Institute, which works with, as you said, military. Uh, we are the official endorsers of the chaplains for the United States military, all facets of the army, and uh, working in the prison environment with prisoners inside the prison, pre-incarceration, post-incarceration, re-entry, their families, their children. We also do a lot of work in policy creation. Our staff has done much in promoting and being the initiators of the First Step Act, as you might have heard. And uh, again, uh, also working with alternative sentencings and making presentations to the court system on behalf of people that are seeking that. Well, it's a lot there to unpack. Um, I have to say, though, you know, getting sent down to Miami on Schlichus, you know, that's a pretty good gig, you know, when you compare it to some of your friends in uh, Siberia or <laughs> wherever else they might be. How'd you score such a good gig? Well, two things. Number one, Miami in 1969 is not Miami in 2019. Fewer restaurants, huh? <laughs> there was one restaurant, which was not Glad Kosher, just kosher, but also uh, nothing else here that was available. The Jewish community here was an elderly community. Very few young people that lived here. There were small groups, but the majority of the population here were retired people who spent summers here, the, winter, the winters here, excuse me, as referred to them as snowbirds. The summer, you could almost walk across the main streets without getting hit by a car. <laughs> Very slow traffic. It was a different world completely than it is today. And so uh, coming down here at that time, we had to import our meats from New York, our milk products from New York. Now they just import the people from New York. <laughs> And now, uh, now it's a whole different world. So people that come down here now, it's uh, Miami is like a metropolis of Jewish life. Yeah, it's incredible. I'll be down there in a couple in a couple weeks or a couple months, I should say, and possibly uh, going to your synagogue, as I've done many times, by the way. So just backing up, when did you come over from Russia? How old were you? You said you were born there. I was born in Russia. Came out of Russia when I was uh, 
about 25 days old. They took me out uh, miraculously across the border. That at that time was not a legal thing to do. And then spent the next five years of my life in the DP camps in Germany, multiple DP camps, which are displaced persons, which is right after the war, 1946. Came to Canada in 1951 and grew up there basically until my marriage, though at the age of 15, I went to New York to yeshiva. Where was your family in Russia? Were they, is this during the war? They were, had they been coming from somewhere else? What was their? Yes, their original origin was Gomel for my mother, Poltava for my father. They then lived in Leningrad, but I was born in Tashkent, which was the route to get out of Russia at that time. And the DP camps we were in was Schwebischal, Feldefing, right outside of Munich, and in that general environment. Do you have memories of the DP camps? Of course. Of course I do. I remember so much of it, in fact, going to Cheder in the basement of a building, living in an environment surrounded by military people, American soldiers. Some of them were not the most friendly and scared us from time to time. Our uh, outings were going down to the main city, to Munich, and watching a parade of nonstop half-tracks, military vehicles, tanks, leaving the country and going back to the United States that would go on for hours and hours and days and days. I remember walking with my grandmother to a farm where she would buy milk that was milked in front of her eyes by the farmer at that time, watched that whole process. Everything had to be homemade from the milk that we drank directly from the farm, not pasteurized, not homogenized, but brought back in a pail and then poured into our glasses, in some instances cooked to make sure that it was clean, and everything else was of a similar nature. I remember the first time when I came off the ship in Halifax, that was in the harbor where the ship that carried us over, called the Anna Salin, actually was a real, was probably a ship that could not service anybody today. We had a small little room where all four kids of us were stationed in that little room. My mother was in the infirmary because she had just given birth. My dad was downstairs in the barracks on army cots with another hundred plus men. And the ship was of such a caliber that on the way back, the ship sank actually. Oh my. So yeah, what, uh, thank God, without casualties, but it did sink. So it was not the best ship in the world. I was a little kid. I remember on the ship, the delicacy was the peels of an orange that my mother would get to give her vitamin C. So she would have to eat the orange because she was in a hospital, but we would get the peels of the orange and that was our delicacy. And I remember coming off the ship in Halifax and they met the Jewish community the Hayas, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, yeah. Yes, they met us at the time. And I remember them giving us this white bread that I had never seen before in my life. <laughs> and it looked so soft, everybody was just chomping into it. And I remember as someone was handing me a sandwich with this white bread, my father says to me, Sholem's nishkosha, it's not kosher. And I said, oh my God. So those are some of the just very colloquial memories that I would have. 
That's amazing. Was your family, were your family, I know in Lubavitch was a very activist, you know, Hasidus going back for generations, you know, back into Ukraine, white Russia. Was your family very active in those? Yes. Yes. Extremely active. My great, great grandfather, my grandfather's grandfather was in the very famous cheder of the Tzemach Tzedek. His name was Rabbi Tchayel. He was a very famous chassid, well-known, and generations thereafter continued. On my father's side, uh, his father actually was a chavrusa of the Rav Epstein, of the author of the Teda Tamima. Oh, wow. So not a Lubavitcher. <laughs> he was not a Lubavitcher. And when we, he was asked, why do you send your kids to Chabad? And there was underground schools. And all my father and his brothers were sent to Chabad. Uh, my grandfather actually was murdered by the Bolsheviks, tortured to death for being a rabbi and spreading Jewishness. My other grandfather was imprisoned, was tortured also, but managed to leave Russia, as was my father arrested multiple times. But when they asked my grandfather, my father's father, why you send your kids to Chabad, so he said that sending them to another yeshiva, you might say, might make them scholars, but I know for sure that if I send them to Chabad, they'll remain Jews. Oh, it's, that, it's that sense of self-sacrifice and willingness to stay Jewish at all odds, I guess, that Chabad has excelled at. At the same time, they also became scholars. You know, <laughs> it's a misconception because of Chabad's outreach philosophy, general approach. It's a total misconception that Chabad guys are not as learned. They're great scholars in the Chabad community of extraordinary nature. But uh, the attitude, is, you know, it's not like when the guy walks in, everybody gets up and so forth. It's a very informal kind of interactive process of closeness and friendship and so forth. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that Chabad, from what I you know of it, um, was, was more of an intellectual Hasidus, actually, you know, early on than some of the others. You know, Chachmabina and that, three words of knowledge, you know, for knowledge. Absolutely. In fact, Chabad Hasidus, if you read, for example, the Rebbe's talks and the Tzemach Tzedek's talks, they totally integrate the halachic, you might say, revealed Torah perspective, Talmudic, issues with Hasidus in a very dynamic fashion. And it's remarkable the way they segue into each other in a manner that makes them literally like one. Now, you went to Crown Heights, I imagine, to, to study, it sounds like, from high school age already. I wasn't at Crown Heights. Wasn't Crown Heights. Where, was the Chabad, where were Chabad institutions at that time? The Yeshiva High School was in Bedford and Dean, Bedford ah, Stuyvesant, actually. Stuy, wow. And we would come for Shabbos. We would come to Crown Heights, where I would stay with my grandfather. But all week, we dormed at Bedford-Stuyvesant. Okay. So at that time, I imagine it was still the early days of Lubavitch sort of establishing itself in the United States. I imagine that access to the Rebbe, uh, Lubavitcher Rebbe, was probably more available than it was you know, later on in the 80s, 90s, certainly, early 90s at least. Was that the case? And, and what was kind of the access that you had and the relationship that you had? Well, the access we had was not a daily access. I mean, we saw the Rebbe on a regular basis, particularly when I then moved over to study in 770. That was in uh, the end of 1963. I came to New York. I spent two years at Bedford and Dean in the end of 1961. In 1963, we'd see the Rebbe daily because we would pray Mincha and Marv with him every day. 
and would see him every Monday and Thursday morning when he came to the reading of the Torah, because in those days, in the early periods, he would not pray Shacharit with the minion. He would pray on his own for whatever reasons. And we would have an opportunity to go and have a private audience with the Rebbe once a year before our birthdays. And that was the highlight of the year for us with much preparation and so forth. But of course... What was it like? Did you have to prepare something to, to say over to him? Was it no. like a, a trepidation? What was the experience? It was a uh, great trepidation, a sense of awesome fear, not you know afraid that he was going to criticize or punish us, but just a fear of presence. And when you came into his room and saw the Rebbe face-to-face, one-on-one, it was an out-of-body experience to a certain extent. To tell you a little bit about that, so I can give you some kind of a way that you can uh, measure it, you know, after the Rebbe's passing, I went into the Rebbe's office, and I have not been able to go there too often because I realized that from the door to the desk was like four steps. It was a tiny little room. When I would walk in, when the Rebbe was there, from the door to the desk where I had to put my letter down for him to read my requests or my questions at that time, it was like a mile long. And so, you know, the, his presence changed the reality, really, even of space, a spatial reality. So it was a, a very uh, dynamic kind of interaction. But at the same time, also, uh, he would answer all written letters to him in a very direct manner, not usually by responding with a letter, but making a note on the letter that you sent. And because he was answering literally thousands of letters a month, hundreds of letters a week. And as time went on, it turned into thousands of letters a week. But uh, at that time, we would always get a response from the Rebbe. And of course, just being in his presence for many years and listening to his talks on a regular basis, every Shabbos Mavorchim and every holiday, and many times during Shabbat, it was an extraordinary experience that was uh, educational from one point of view, learned a tremendous amount because the Rebbe Sichas contained a Sich of an hour would contain uh, close to 50 or 60 citations of Talmudic sources, Bavli, Rishalmi, Koach, Shulchan Aruch, commentaries, Rishayinim, Achreinim, Zohar, etc. So, it was really a vast aspect of education. Reading the Rebbe Sichas alone was enough to make you into a semi-scholar. Do you have any particular memories that stand out from those birthday meetings that you can share? Always coming into the Rebbe, but coming with a sense of trepidation, as you mentioned, a sense of awesome reality, and without knowing what was going to happen in the room, there was uh, hopes, but no expectations, because you could never know. He asked the Rebbe for questions about personal development, aspects of learning, not questions in the learning itself, but questions about one's relationship to learning. If one wanted to learn some other subjects or wanted to be excel in certain areas or felt a weakness in certain areas, whether it was learning or davening or performance of mitzvahs or outreach, whatever the case was, but I remember every time coming out feeling exhilarated, uplifted, extraordinary, joyful, because the Rebbe was able to infuse that within each and every one of us. Everyone came out in the same way, in a very special manner. 
So, you know, particularly individual statements from the Rebbe, talks uh, that he's given or answers that he's given me to give you one response when discussing my professional life, which the Rebbe said should be involved in education of young and old, etc. And he says, uh, with a complete trusting heart, with secure heart, you can rely on the great Jewish scholars who are true and not have to at all look into secular works in order to get information or knowledge about subjects. Even though he himself was quite schooled in those areas. Well, actually, the areas that we stressed was obviously the knowledge. Arithmetic was very important. Mathematics was important. To understand a little bit of history is important. What the Rebbe was referencing was philosophy, pedagogy, and aspects of how to deal with life with humanity and so forth. He wasn't dealing with raw sciences. You know that, that water is H2O, etc. things of that nature. So now, fast forwarding a little bit, you came down to Miami into this sort of this desert, I guess, hard to imagine today. You started to work in a school and then ultimately build a community. What was that process like? And what were some of the, the major obstacles and the major successes of those decades that followed? Well, I was invited to come down here by the Hetchliach of the state of Florida, Rabbi Korf. And when I asked the Rebbe about what my future should be, he told me to go to Miami and to accept that job. I started out as the principal of the elementary school, which had approximately 60 students. And uh, presently that school, which I left in 1980, as being run by Rabbi Korf's son, has close to 1,800 students, was able to grow the school considerably, the obstacles were obvious. Number one, it was a Chabad school with boys and girls in separate classes. People were not used to that here. It was not something that was common. So the financing, the funding was the school was not great. We had a philosophy and a policy of never turning away a Jewish child under any circumstances. So tuition was not always readily available. And because of our policy, many children who were not accepted in other schools would come to us. So that caused some difficulty. Location, uh, we were on top of a synagogue that the fire department considered to be unsafe and made us leave that synagogue. And we had to find a place to continue our school. We had to move to the middle of what you might call today Cuba Town, which was in the southwest Miami, which is an old synagogue that was not in use any longer. And they let us use the classrooms in that synagogue for a while. And then by the grace of God, one of the men that participated in a Torah class that I would give weekly, who was so turned on and had, thank God, the resources, gave us the money to build the beautiful building, which was extraordinary. At that time, it was a state-of-the-art kind of a building and grew the school at that time to about 250 and then to 350 students from elementary school to high school. Started a Yeshiva Gedola, a post-high school and the Yeshiva Gdola was started primarily with a group of 10 young students who were called Shluchim, who were sent by the Rebbe to a, create a Torah environment and to also utilize their spare time in outreach. It was a full study program, full time, spend their time in outreach. And that was just uh, the beginning, uh, beginning times. 
uh, we were not the favorite kid on the block. We had a tough time to create our credibility and to get our credentials in order to such a degree that presently, I would say Chabad is pretty much mainstream. And then eventually, of course, you moved into building the community and what's known as the shul, a <laughs> very just simple, nice, simple name, which is a beautiful edifice. The only thing I don't like about it is that you got to go through the metal, you know, all the security to get in there. <laughs> but I understand why. But I need, I need one of those, uh, you know, a quick path, fast pass or something for next time I come down there. Well, first of all, the, we came up here again. Uh, there was no community here whatsoever. In fact, I was not welcomed very much. The person that arranged for me to have a space here was a dear friend and who had a building here and wanted to have a shul. The Rebbe told him what's with a shul. So the Rebbe told me then to come up here and to start a community. It was a very anti-Semitic community until 1986 when I purchased our home on my deed. Actually, just before that, before we purchased our home, there was a lawsuit because on our deed, it said that if you were 25% Jewish or Syrian, you could not own a home there. So it was that kind of a community. And consistently, even the Jewish guys in the community would tell me to go back where I came from and who asked you to come and who invited you. The reason we called it the shul was because it's a very generic name. You know, I couldn't call it by uh, Orthodox, like the synagogue, because people wouldn't come. A temple, the Orthodox people would not come. But the shul, everybody that's from knows what a shul is. And uh, eventually everybody was kind of comfortable with it. So we just called it by the most generic name that we could find. That was the simplest name, like Aleph. We try to keep it simple and simple. <laughs> I like that. I, I see the theme. <laughs> and it's definitely become a real hub in that area. And, you know, with lots of different services, morning services, et cetera. Good snacks when you're, uh, you know, after you finish praying. So I enjoy those. And I was just saying, I need like TSA, you know, fast pass to get through some of the security. Sometimes when I come in there, so. <laughs> but uh, as, as you can imagine, uh, you know, people here are very concerned with security today. And it's demanded. It, it is, we'd rather not have it. It's spending money in a manner that we'd rather put that investment in education and programming. But we need to do that. and. Thank God our security is strong, and most of the community enjoys it. I mean, not enjoys it, but finds it necessary and does appreciate it. The early part of the shul here, we started in a little space that was given to us just for Shabbos Hotel, and uh, eventually we became a daily minion in a little shoe in a shoe store on the lower level of a hotel, which is not the most beautiful space, but slowly. We started working on getting people to come to Davin. Shabbos was a larger community. Actually, one of the great attractions of Shabbos was my wife's chont. No, seriously. I believe it. <laughs> it was a great Kiddush every Shabbos, and eventually people got to enjoy it. They started coming to classes. Our minyanim at the early period, the, 1980, the end of 1981-82, was just two of us in the morning. But well, we started Minyan every single morning at 7.30 a.m., two of us. One went up to the Ahmed, and then it turned to three and to four. Eventually, we made a Minyan. And the way that we got the Minyan, in many instances, we couldn't put together 10 people. We had nine people or eight people. And I would call the taxi company and ask them to send the Jewish driver. 
and come to keep the meter running and come on in to make Dominion. That's great. I love that. The person that gave us a million dollars to build this building was a gentleman that lived across the street. You would never believe that he would give us a million dollars. He didn't look that way. We asked him to come in for a minion. He refused. He said, I don't believe in that. Don't bother me. Get away from me. Literally. But I was saying cottage to my father and I needed a minion desperately. And so I uh, begged him. He said, don't bother me. I told you, don't ask. Don't even ask me to come in. And he had to stick. And, you know, he was one of these guys that were, remember those plaid polyester pants that people would wear <laughs> in those years? And in his pocket, he had this plastic kind of thing where he stuck 16 pens in, you know. With a <laughs> Pocket <drink>. protector, yeah. <laughs> yeah, with a little, little cap. He was a, an accountant in his early professional life. This man was in his late 70s, early 80s. I needed a minion. I had no choice. And the nine people that were with me, they said, you know, Rabbi, we got it. We have to leave. And I could not miss saying Kaddish for my father at that year. And so I begged him to stay for another moment. I went back down took off my tefillin and went with my talus and he was sitting at the counter in a corner drugstore that had like a luncheonette with it and waiting for breakfast. And I came and I said, sir, please, you must do me a favor. I need to say a special prayer for my father who passed away and I need the 10th person. And he says, I told you not to bother me. And besides which, he says, I ordered breakfast. I said, how much was the breakfast? And he said, like three ninety-five. I took out a $5 bill from my pocket and it was the first and last time ever in my life that I paid for a bacon and eggs breakfast. (laughs) I put the money on the table. I said, here's the money. You'll have another breakfast. Please come. He said, well, if it's worth $5 to you, then I'll come. But he said, don't give me a sitter. Don't put on any stuff. I'll just come. I said, all I need is your warm body. I don't need you to do anything else. I need the 10th Jew. And he came in. The next day, he was kind of wandering in front of the building that we had purchased to make a synagogue. It was like a little apartment house on the street here where the shul is presently. And uh, I came out and I said, you come in again. We need dominion. He says, but remember my conditions. And for about a half a year, he refused to put on film or anything. When I finally told him, please put on the film. He started to enjoy coming to show. So he said, well, I will. I'll do it in honor of Yom Kippur. And I remember that year before Rosh Hashanah, we had leased a rented space in the Sheraton, which is a hotel here because we needed more space for our minion. And uh, I asked the president, I said, we need to buy 200 Machzorim books for to pray in. I don't know who this audience is, so I'm going to translate everything. Please, yeah, translate. It's, it's broad. That's what I do here. I translate everything into English. So the president said to me at that time, we don't have the money. How are you going to pay for it? It was like a $7,000 bill. I said, I don't know, but I, I have to buy it. He says, well, uh, it's your, own, your responsibility. Obviously, I ordered the books, brought the books. This gentleman comes into the shul, uh, Rosh Hashanah, before Rosh Hashanah. He sees all these books. He said, hey, where'd you get all these books? I said, yeah, no, I ordered these books. He said, where'd you get them? He says, well, uh, I ordered them. He says, really? And uh, did you pay for them? I said, no, I haven't paid for them yet. He says, why not? He said, I don't have the money. He says, well, now you have the money. So I remember the president had come over to me at that time. He said, don't waste your time with this old man. I needed this old man who was making my minion. And he was a Jew. He was a fellow brother. He says, don't waste your time with this old man. 
So I said to him, please, let me deal with him in the way I'd like to deal with him because every Jew is a Jew to me. But he said, it's, it's just a waste of time. And uh, when I walked up to the prison, I said, by the way, the books that I ordered, it's been paid for. He said, who paid for it? I said, that old man. That he was smiling, the old man like winked to me. He says, you know, that's, that, that's how you get in with some of these people. That's a beautiful story on so many levels because the persistence and the inner heart of even the most distant appearing Jew and the misjudging somebody. There's so many lessons just from that one anecdote. Listen to the last part of the story. So I asked him now to put on tefillin. He said, I'll put on tefillin before Yom Kippur. So I'm, before Yom Kippur, I uh, called him. And I said, you're going to put on tefillin? He says, yes, but I've got my own. I was surprised to hear that. He brings out his pair of tefillin. And he opens them up and literally the leather straps fell off the box. Those film had not been opened in 75 years. Oh my. They literally fell off the boxes. And so I said, you need to put on other tefillin. So I had a pair of tefillin. He took off his hat. He'd never taken off his hat before. And he had a bald head. And I put these tefillin on him. And I said to him, you know, Mr. Schuster, these tefillin look like a crown on your head. And I turn around, and all of a sudden, he's, he's not there anymore. I said, did anybody see Mr. Schuster? You know, we're in the middle of our prayers, Sarah Jim Kipper. They said, we, I, we saw him go to the back. I go into the back, and he's standing in the bathroom looking in the mirror. I said, you can't go into the bathroom. We're in a felon. He said, I just wanted to see how the crown looks on my head. <laughs> uh, this is before iPhones. How you couldn't uh, just show him and take a selfie. <laughs> and then uh, shortly thereafter, he came over to me and said, I know that you have expectations and your hopes to build a synagogue and build a community because you people are interested. And we were jammed here. We constituted a few little apartments and made it into one big room, but there was really no room. We had a major class Tuesday night. It was one of the only classes in the city, so we would get 200 young people every Tuesday night to study. And uh, we were getting 200 people on Shabbat, and there was just no room. So he recognized that. He said, so what do you want to do? I said, I don't want, to. of course I want to build a building. He said, how much do you think it'll cost you? So foolishly, I said, I think it'll cost me about $2 million. So he said, I'll give you, I'll give you a million. Just like that. And, and did you have any idea that he even had, had those kinds of means? No. He looked like a schlepper. I told you, he would came with the thing. He never changed his pair of pants. He always wore the same blue shirt. And what is I guess that's how he saved up his money. He didn't spend it on anything. <laughs> I remember when he told his lawyer to cut the check to me, and after it was $997,800, because there was a little amount that was taken off for putting the check together. I remember taking the check with me and flying to New York and sending it into the Rebbe, just to send it in the Rebbe, send it out with a blessing. But it was the beginning of this community in a certain way. And then uh, another group, from South America, chipped in and gave us another million dollars. And it, actually, the show cost us about close to $10 million. I was going to say, that's not a $2 million building that, that I've been to. No, it wasn't, but it was a good start. That's a great start. That's a great start. Okay, and we are here now in Bell Harbor, Florida, live. And uh, when we left off, we had gotten through the really incredible story of the establishment of the community, the building of the beautiful edifice in which we're now sitting. Uh, which alone would be a great story. And uh, at the same time, not terribly unlike, you know, many other 
communities that have been built and developed over the years. But there's an entire other chapter to your life, Rabbi Lipsker, and that is what you've done establishing the Aleph Institute, which has now become a, a massive organization servicing military personnel and uh, people of uh, incarceration and pre and post and all of that. So that's certainly atypical for a, uh, a normal rabbi building a synagogue and so forth. So if you could just take us to the genesis of that story, how did that emerge from being a, a rabbi, a Chabad rabbi with a regular shul in a community to all of a sudden this massive international uh, organization doing so much uh, creative good? Actually, they both came simultaneously. And the uh, genesis of Aleph was the Rebbe's influence, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, who spoke publicly about it in 1981 and talked about the fact that he had previously talked about the need for addressing people in circumstances where they weren't able to have spiritual growth. And the fact is that they are waiting for spiritual growth. They're waiting for someone to be with them, to teach them, to give them direction. And in fact, according to Jewish law, there's no such thing as prison. Uh, the punishments, there is capital punishment, corporal punishment, financial punishments, uh, even cities of refuge. But if you send someone to cities of refuge, you send them with the entire family. And Maimonides rules that you have to send his teacher with him because a person without spiritual guidance doesn't have real life. And here they're warehousing human beings who are sitting there, so to speak, in a suspended animation in a particular circumstance where they're alive and not alive, and we've seen it many times, and there's nobody that's giving it attention. So I wrote a note to the Rebbe the next day and said, I would like to uh, uh, see what can be done. You threw your hat in the ring, pretty much. And the Rebbe said to me, warm, thank you, warm, thank you. And then from that moment on, I did a kind of an a, uh, experimental program in one prison. I imagine in Florida. In Florida, a federal prison. I made some contact with the chaplain, and he opened the door for me, even though the warden was a real anti-Semite, and gave us a lot of problems. And I started studying with them once a week. I would meet with them for a few hours three hours approximately, and I studied with them, and they started to really get them connected with their Jewishness. They started putting on tefillin, they started the davening every day, and, and they, they had a desire to keep kosher, and it was really a change. How many Jewish inmates were there at the time there? A day, I worked with approximately 20 inmates. Well, that's a lot for a federal prison. Yes, it was a lot, and this is 1981. And is this mostly white-collar type of stuff? We're talking federal prison? Or? Yes, white-collar, but primarily some crossing the boundaries of white-collar into the drug environment, but finance, financing it and so forth. But in that kind of environment, there was no uh, real people that were violent or that were a danger from that perspective. And uh, then I decided to try to work with their families because the divorce rate in prisons is so vast. And so I would start meeting with the wives in a someone's home in the neighbor in the area next near the prison for also a few hours a week, same day. And then every two weeks, the chaplain would allow us to bring them together. And so we had also marriage counseling and human living conditions, etc. 
and it worked out extremely well. I mean, the growth was fantastic. It was beyond my wildest imaginations. They were like thirsting for it. Everything that I offered to them, they would swallow as if it was a fresh cup of cold water and a parched throat in a hot summer day in the desert. That's how I can describe the kind of desire that they had for this learning. And at some point, they decided they wanted to have kosher. But uh, the warden was not a Jewish-friendly guy. He was written about, you can look it up. You know, his name was Kohain. Really? Yeah, German descent. His father was a warden. His grandfather was a warden. Normally when you hear Cohen, you hear the father was a priest, the grandfather was a priest. <laughs> this is not Cohen. This is K-O-H-A-E-N-E. Small change, big difference. <laughs> and I went to see him. It took me time to get to see him. And he met me, and he has all of his walls plastered. You know, God is great. They had uh, JC and all their faith all over the place, and he was sitting with his, with his feet and big Texan boots on the desk. He says, what can I do for you, Rabbi? So I said to him, you know, we believe in the Bible, and in the Bible there's a certain obligation for Jewish people to maintain dietary laws, sharing habits, and you know, God said so. So he looks at me straight out and he says, in this place I'm God. Wow. And there's no food for this special dietary consideration. Anyways, we uh, tried to work on it and uh, went all the way up to the federal government. We had some connections there through judges and uh, made some relationships. And they sent down some people and uh, that's a story in itself. You know, the kitchen there that has to feed put out three, four thousand meals a day or five thousand meals a day, you know. So this kitchen, in order for safety purposes, they have all the machine, the ovens and then the tables and the shelves, but there's no ceiling. So, you know, there's no private rooms. So these men came down from Washington, checked to see if we could have kosher because it was the law that you had to supply kosher food. So they came down and by divine providence, I was there with them. And we were walking by, you know, these baker's ovens that turn around. And we were standing on one side. And on the other side, there must have been a couple of guys standing there. There were a couple of guys actually talking to each other. And uh, one of them says, you know, if I were Hitler, I would have done it much easier. I would have gotten these ovens. You could do <gasps> six at a time. No. Just like that. With you there. I, they didn't see me. Cause wow. I, was, but we heard it because there's no... I told you there's no ceiling. That's why I'm telling you. Oh, this my goodness. So uh, quickly they said, we have to have kosher food. And, and he still made problems with them. One day, the whole group decided, I would give them, I would teach them on a Tuesday. One group, the whole, the whole group decided that they were not going to eat any food. A hunger strike. A hunger strike. Hunger strike in prison. That's like gang style, you know, like making groups and making... Uh, anti-prison policy. We called it the Tuesday morning massacre. They woke him up at four o'clock in the morning and they shipped him all out of the prison. They shipped him to, I remember then, 11 or 12 different prisons. It's called diesel therapy. When they ship you to California, they don't take a bus and they go directly cross country. They will go up through Georgia and come across the middle of the country and they'll take you two months to get to California and they'll keep you in local prisons and county prisons 
because they have a deal and, they, and the county prisons like it because they get some money per night. So this is called diesel therapy. They're in a bus with steel seats with their hands and feet shackled. And that's how they ride. It is to just break them. Break them. And because of overcrowding, it was a way of maintaining some kind of a balance in terms of the population. Anyways, what little did they know that they created the Yellow Institute because all of a sudden, from 11 different prisons, I was getting notes. I need to fill in. I need fill ins here. I need a couple of sitters here. I need a couple of chumishes here. They did not say it properly. You know, got notes, and all of a sudden, we were working in 11 prisons. Unbelievable. And uh, get started to keep moving from there, and then we became stronger in this place because the warden left. And uh, the chaplain allowed us to, to do more programming, and there were Jews there. So that's basically the concept of Aleph. And then it's expanded into other fields. For example, uh, the reason for Aleph, Aleph is the first Hebrew letter. And because there was so much anti-Semitism at that time, in the prison environment particularly, so the Jewish symbol is usually a menorah, or a... Star of David. Star of David, or a luchos, the... Tablets, yeah. Tablets, and they know that's Jewish. But nobody knows of Aleph is Jewish. In fact, they refer to us as a Greek organization, Alpha, and, or the Olive. I have so many letters to the Olive Institute, all the ID. <laughs> and the Olive, the shape, they don't know what an Olive is, and it's a mathematical character as well. Right. So that's what Olive, and then we expanded, of course, to the military, which is also limited kind of access at that time, and we started working in the military. We now are official endorsers of the chaplaincy for the Department of Defense. Read that. What does it mean to be an endorser? Endorser means that the people that are trained by us are eligible to become chaplains in the military. In other words, they don't need to go through a separate chaplaincy training. Not chaplaincy training. They have to go through a separate military training. Basic training or whatever. Yes, but the chaplaincy training, they trust us. And we have conferences, and we have high-level people from... Pentagon to come down and address them, generals and so forth, people that the average soldier would not interact with. So we started that program. And then within the prison environment, we started doing all kinds of programs. Like uh, We were very trusted in the prison environment. Our initial introduction to the federal prison system was a judge by the name of Jack Weinstein, who was the chief judge. He was the chief judge of the Eastern District, one of the foremost uh, legal scholars in America. He was a professor at Columbia. He wrote books on evidence, and we became very close. In fact, we, f- we made the formal start of the elephants. It was in his chambers. So uh, we had access to the federal environment. And just to tell you another little interesting anecdote that Git tells you. So we were able then, because there was prison fellowship that was started by the group that uh, was involved in Watergate, if you remember. I don't remember personally, but I... <laughs> so this prison fellowship was very active. And so we uh, kind of uh, latched onto that, even though they probably wouldn't have given us permission if we were just starting it. But they had what's called retreats. They would take guys out uh, from prison and kind of train them to be lay leaders kind of people. But what they did, you know, what can, the Christian, what they did, they started painting the churches, you know, they did all these volunteer things. They don't have, like, laws of kashrus and Shabbos and learning. So we started having that, and we did, like, uh, over 20 retreats. We would take out an average of 20 people each time, different environment, different areas, from 20 people from maybe 10 or 20 prisons. And we would train them. 
was a two-week program. And then they would go back into the prisons and be kind of... Uh, more knowledgeable, you know. Shluchim. <laughs> precisely to that. Or, and themselves become more educated. We have a full curriculum, you know. Our program was uh, very effective. And uh, at our first program, who shows up as the chief chaplain from the Federal Bureau? He just shows up on a t- unannounced. I welcome him. And he says, you know, I just came down here to see you because uh, members of my family owned a hotel at that time on the ocean. So, you know, what kind of retreat are they doing on the ocean? That's right. <laughs> and it was, you know, it was like an old hotel and it was closed for the summer, so we were able to use it. So he came into the program and he was going to stay there for a couple of days, just watch to see what we do. Then the next morning after breakfast, he walked over, he says, you know, you guys can do anything you want. You're excellent. I can go back now, but I'm going to just stay because I have to stay. So, but I said, really, what uh, impressed you so much? Well, he says, one of the guys came over to me from a prison, Eglin, a federal prison in Eglin. Uh, it's a camp. And he said to me, Chaplain, can you arrange for me to get back to prison? So he says, are you kidding? You're here. He says, no, 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 I'm not kidding. He says, this is worse than prison. He says, let me just tell you my schedule. <laughs> he says, we wake up in the morning. They make us wash our hands in a certain way with a cup. Then we got to wear these sits as he shows them the strings. He says, Every <laughs> and then we have a cup of coffee. And then we go to pray. I mean, this is not like a minute prayer. This is like an hour's prayer. And then after that, we're going to breakfast. We've got to wash our hands again, say another <laughs> prayer. We have eat breakfast. We've got to say another prayer. And then it's like going back to school. He says, we're learning texts. And we're learning about these details of what animals are kosher, what, what you're supposed to eat, what you're not supposed to eat, how you're supposed to conduct yourself on the Sabbath day. He says, and it's all day like that. He says, in the afternoon, he says, after the study, we have uh, lunch. We've got to wash our hands again. They make blessings. and wash our hands again and make another blessing. And then we have to do an afternoon service. We do another service. It takes us 20 minutes. <laughs> so then we go back to class. And for dinner, it's the same thing all over again. We're washing and this and that. He says, we've got to wear this, this cap on my head all the time. He says, it's the heaviest load I've ever worn. He says, so... Uh, I'm not used to this. In prison, he says, I got a job. He says, I finished my job at 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm free all day. There's too much structure here. Get me back to prison. <laughs> so when, after the two weeks, we used to have a dinner. And he got up to speak, this same guy. He says, I want you to know this little cap on my head, which weighs, he was a bodybuilder. I mean, he was a big guy. He says, it's the heaviest weight I've ever carried. He says, but I know what it is to be a Jew now. Unbelievable. So just the anecdotal how things uh, work out like that. And then, you know, in the chaplaincy in the military, it's very important. We had a general here, his name was Shachnau, three-star. He was the head of the uh, Green Berets. He was a Holocaust survivor. They found him as a little boy in the ashes of Auschwitz. Oh, my. He passed away. He wrote a book, actually. And uh, he had retired, so he, we had him to speak here one day. He was known as, I mean, a warrior. The reputation he had was, you didn't know he killed you until after you were dead. <laughs> I mean, he was a real a warrior. Green Berets, not, that's not he, messing around. Yeah. And he was a general. I mean, he's a <laughs> high level. And he started out as a delinquent, you know, came. They sent him to a town, which was only churches. He grew up with non-Jews. 
So we, we brought him here as a speaker, and he said that it's very interesting to note that there is a pecking order in the military. You know, the private first class speaks to the sergeant, then the sergeant speaks to the captain, the captain speaks to the lieutenant, the lieutenant speaks. There's a, a order. He says the private doesn't speak to the general. You don't jump rank. Yeah, you don't, don't jump rank. He says the only one that jumps rank is the chaplain because he speaks to the general because we all need some spiritual influence. So the chaplaincy is a very important office in that environment. And then we went into alternative sentencing because of the Rebbe's position. The Rebbe gave a few talks when the men were there on, on prison issues. Really? So he, he came to the programs? Not he, but we, we took these people out. So we were, when we were in the New York area, because sometimes we had it in the, up north, we would bring them for a Shabbat to the Rebbe's. For, for, and, the Rebbe. and he would speak to them? Speak to the whole crowd. You see the sensitivity of the Rebbe. So the first time we brought them, you know, the Rebbe's room had thousands of people there, and it was crowded. And in order to get a good seat, you had to come at 7 a.m. to just so that you'd have a space, unless otherwise you'd be in the back. And the Shabbos, there's no microphone. So we would get uh, for these 20 guys, and they couldn't stay from 7 because they had to go home. To, they, we had to arrange for lunch for them. Right, you had a program. Yeah, yeah and then at 1.30, the Rebbe would come out. So we had like uh, 20 young rabbinical students who sat in... Saved seats. Saved seats. <laughs> it's the only way to do it. So just before the Fabrangian at 1.30, the Rebbe is about to come down. The Rebbe's secretary comes down, Rebbe Groner. He's Groner, yeah. And he comes looking for me. And, you know, it's hard even to get there. And I jumped over the tables and we got there. He says, the Rebbe said two things he wanted me to know. Number one, not to have the men sit together. Because if they sit together, people ask who they are and they might become embarrassed. So sensitive, wow. And secondly, he says, I'm going to give some mashka to various people for events and for Drinks. their bottles to take back to their towns. He said, they deserve it more than anyone else, but I will not give it to them because I don't want to bring attention to them. Incredible. And then he gave a talk about why a person goes to prison. And remember, it was intimated, a person does not go to prison because he does something wrong. That only makes him eligible to go to prison because there's so many people that did wrong and they're not in prison. And everybody, all the prisoners know it. He says, the reason you're there is because Hashem sends you there. Mm. And he says, we all have some sort of prison. The soul is imprisoned in the body. The soul doesn't want to come into the body. He cries before it comes into the body. Don't send me down there to be challenged by all the factors of the seductive components of this physical world. And so he doesn't want to go into this, into the body. And the reason he goes into the body, so he says, so the first exile is the soul and the body. It's an exile. And then the body goes into exile, which is a double exile. He says, and sometimes within exile, you go into prison, which is a third exile. It's an exile within an exile within an exile. The reason Hashem sends his child into exile is to sanctify that dark space. So the dark space also has some light in it. And then he gave a talk to the rabbis, and he was kind of, he said to the rabbi, it's not enough that you get smicha once. You've got to keep up to date. You've got to keep learning and so forth, because new questions, new kanut, and so on. And we, after they spoke, we had guys standing next to each one of these guys and translating it to them, so because the rabbi speaks in Yiddish. Yiddish, yeah. So when we explained to them what the rabbi said, he says, I've never met a rabbi like that. 
He says he uplifts the prisoners and he knocks the rabbis. <laughs> <laughs> they say about the rabbi, he knew who to be hard on. He was, he was demanding. So, uh, you know, I'm just giving you some perspective. And then we start, went into alternative sentencing, which is developing programs that instead of prison to punish and other methods, right. they would not have the collateral damage. Of- Do you think the Rebbe was against prison as a construct? Because you mentioned that it didn't have sourcing. Or did he believe that it had its place in a modern society, but you have violent offenders? Definitely. It has a place in a modern society because of the circumstances. But in many cases, the long draconian prison sentences, which destroy families, destroy humans, they just don't work. And you can see it doesn't, doesn't work on any level. But would he say, let's say, you know, a, a murder? No, people who are a danger to society yeah. should be, we're talking about basically white collar crime. Okay. Not violent crimes. Violent crimes, you keep them locked away because you can't take responsibility for a person who's a murderer. Right. Or a person who can hurt people. So I imagine on the, on the question of, you know, retribution versus rehabilitation, it sounds like the rebel was very much on the side of the latter. Yeah, and retribution... You know, there is a sense of retribution. He's to pay a price, but there's so many ways to pay prices that you doesn't have to have the collateral damage that the consequences that prison brings about in terms of destruction of families, destruction of kids. You know, the statistics of children of prisoners who themselves crossed a line in the criminal justice environment is vast. Divorces, businesses that are shut down, and the human being himself that just loses any sense of, of humanity, of pride. You know, he's warehoused like a sack of potatoes, basically. So what are some alternatives? You mentioned that you've been advocating for that. Yeah, we, we tailor-make it for the particular person. You know, people who are involved, for example, in the food industry or something like that. We'll give him a job for the next three years. He's got to create the food opportunities or kitchens for 500 uh, homeless people or 500 uh, hungry people. You know, we will tailor it to each person's particular malfeasance to be able to fit the category and how they can be rehabilitated. And they'll do this outside of a prison environment? They'll be living in some kind of halfway house environment? or Depending. There's so many factors. You know, sometimes they'll spend a short time in prison just to tell them, you know, what the option is so they take it really serious and sometimes they'll be in a halfway house and do the community service or whatever service that they've been told to do sometimes they'll have house arrest and do this community service so it depends on what the crime was depends how many years they're facing depends on the circumstances there are many factors and we will present a document that addresses all these factors you know we'll interview the families and interview the person and then the, the judges, uh, many judges are very appreciative of our perspectives and our approaches. Many judges could care less. You know, they're hardline, kind of, uh, you know, law and order. Law and order, yeah. Hardline, though, and they don't, could care less. They'll send someone to 20 years in prison without thinking too much about what the consequence is. So that's the prison environment that we work in. As this was all growing, did you just develop your own expertise or did you start bringing in consultants and you know legal experts i mean this is a major is a whole field of study and of course we had uh we have a lawyer on our staff we have uh, top legal minds that give us pro bono time like an alan dershowitz, alan dershowitz yeah who's been on the podcast by the way <laughs> he's the kind of guy that you know so we have very high level people that are involved you know one of my personal advisors was 
listed as number one lawyer in the world. His name is Sam Burstyn. That's a pretty good ranking, number one. So, you know, we have, the, of course, top legal minds. And then at this time, we already have gained credibility. So we have access to the Department of Justice. Uh, you know, our people have very uh, open relationships with the Attorney General, with people involved in that on that level. Uh, we have a very open relationship with the director of the Bureau of Prisons and his uh, staffing, both the central office in Washington and also the regional offices. And uh, basically, we train also the shluchim that are involved in this field. We train them in the field and how to conduct themselves. So, for example, you go to prison, you tell them, never ask somebody, what do they do for a living? Or, so you're going, oh, I met this guy, he's got a boat. Right away, we know that's not the right guy for, for this job. Maybe because he's too enamored. Yeah, your job is just to bring them a sense of companionship, of brotherhood, of caring, and spirituality primarily. So, for example, we have a um, Torah correspondence course of learning. We have uh, 1,300 people on the course. And the way we operate it, we send them information. They have to answer, once they answer the question, they send it back to us. Now we send a new piece of information. So it's kind of like pen pals. No, this is different. We have another pen pal program. This is learning. We have people that mark the papers, read it, and are in charge of it. And we have multiple subjects. We have Gemara, Chumash, Hasidus, history, Hebrew, Tanakh. You know, you have many subjects that are available to them. And then we're able to send them podcasts. They have access to that in prison? In some prisons, they, they have like these uh, computers or just tablets that are very controlled. I mean, but we have, we're able to put on Jewish music there, MP6s. So we'll have to send them this podcast and get this into the prisons. <laughs> Interview with Robert Livsker. In any case, so that's our programs. We'll also make sure that we have an advocacy program. The advocacy program runs out of California. We have a family program. It runs out of New York. Kids, make sure they go summer camp, Jewish education, whatever. And, and these kids can all get together and they're in the similar circumstances that their fathers, let's say, are all in prison and they can relate on that level. We really do not, the families, yes, but not children alone on that level because okay. they can't deal with it. But mothers, yes. Basically, we have a complete program with the whole staff. It's called FEELS. Family, empathy, education, love, and support. So we have the multiple programs that address these matters. And we have, uh, we ship books to film prison, to fill in. We've shipped over a thousand prisons to fill in. That's about half a million dollars worth of fill in. <laughs> it's hard to <laughs> Yeah. And the Sidorum, we have a whole department for that. So that's basically... Uh, and then how did you get into the military? Because the military is a, a whole different operation. The commonality of it is the fact of limited environments. Because they're out, you know, in some base in the middle of Europe or in the Far East or even America, you know, in some Air Force base, Army base, they don't have access to rabbis and to people and to shuls. And so these chaplains... Do they operate as sort of separate silos? Because each one requires its own expertise to navigate, you know, such a different environment um, between each one. Do you have different experts, different leaders or directors within each? Or do they really overlap? They overlap. But, you know, there are times when we bring in experts. For example, we'll have a marriage encounter 
in a prison, so we'll bring in some experts and marriage psychology and things of that nature. And you deal with the military families as well? Yes. In similar kinds of programming and camps and... Yes. What's the scope of all of it at this point? How many people are working in it? Are the offices all right here? Or? No, the central office is here. The advocacy office is in California. The family office is in New York. The military office is here as well. We hired a former uh, lieutenant colonel uh, who was on his way to be a general, who was a career military person to be kind of the co-head of that program. And another enlisted soldier who is also the other co-head, who has to be a shliach kind of person. So right now, you know, it's, Olive has a big staff, a total st- We have um, multiple, much more volunteers than we have paid staff members. Sure. But within the project, you know, we'll have maybe 75 staff people. Wow. That's a hefty budget. Yeah, it is a hefty budget. And is there government funding, or it's all private? All private funding. All private because if it's government funding, they can control what you do. Right. So, private funding. We're very open with everything that we do and so forth, so anybody can access any information. So, what's the future of Olive? Is there, is there something that's uh, still missing? Is there a next frontier? Is there another area of marginalized people that you want now to... We now are starting to creating yeshivas in prison. We've done some experimentation on that. What does that even mean? They they sit down in groups and... That means that you get all the Jews in the prison and we send in, uh, if there's 20 Jews, we send in 7 to 10 young rabbis and they have chavrusa for a week or two. And they sit and learn. They learn how to learn. And then, you know, they come onto our programs, our uh, e-correspondence programs and so forth. So yeah, we're addressing yeshivas in prison. That's one very important uh, program that we're putting a lot of special emphasis on. And now we're very much involved in the advocacy department and, right. you know, shifting the whole criminal justice system away from these long draconian prison sentences. There was major legislation in the yeah, first outgoing back. administration. Were you first step back with Kirshner and all of that? Olive was involved in that? Very much. In fact, one of our staff people spoke at that uh, Hanukkah because of that. The staff person that's in charge of the advocacy. I mean, we were very involved in that. Just in starting to wrap up, you know, you said that you heard the Rebbe speak in, I guess, it was 1981 about this topic and about people who are in these compromised situations. And you wrote him a letter, you know, the next day. Before the days of email, there was a, <laughs> you know, you said that an actual letter and. I was there, so it was. And you're there, yeah, he said, count, you know, count me in. So, what do you think? I mean, there's thousands of Chabad Shluchim all over the world. What do you think was going on within you that sort of allowed you to hear that call? That What was sparked within you that you said, I want to step forward in, in this particular arena? Well, first of all, the Rebbe said that he was kind of, uh, he used the word dis- disappointed, but he said he couldn't understand at all the fact that he had already talked about it. He says and people go out and they try to find somebody that they can influence to become a little bit more connected to the Jewishness. And they'll go through all kinds of measures to be able to achieve that. And here he says there's a whole group of Jews, hundreds and more Jews, who are sitting and waiting for someone to come to them. And no one's doing it. So uh, that And he felt like nobody had answered the call yet. He had been yeah. speaking about it and no one had stepped forward. And at, at that time, you know, it was not, uh, you know, Olive, when, you know, my own 
board of directors here in the shul were not very keen. I could imagine that was you're running a synagogue. That's plenty of full-time job. Not because of a full-time job. Of all people you're going to deal with are prisoners. Right. You know, let them hang in prison, you know. Right. In fact, there was one gentleman who really took a proactive, aggressive position against me. On the board? He wasn't on the board, but he a was... A member. Yes, and he was really... Uh, it talk negative, you know, he's going to change our community. Start bringing prisoners into the, into the shul. <laughs> so, you know, I, I didn't give him any heat. I started to try to talk to him. He was nothing to listen until, for whatever reason, he ended up in prison. No. Oh, my goodness. And he became our most loyal ally. <laughs> he's like, the first one, he's like, sent me my tefillin, sent me my kosher food. <laughs> one group we took out, we took them to the to Abnebrith meeting. And there were like maybe three, four, five hundred people in that room. And they invited me to give a talk. So I brought all these people. And I just sat around the whole room. And they were dressed like you, just you and me. And everybody was wondering, well, when are we going to see these prisoners? And then at the early part of my talk, I said, you know, and ladies and gentlemen, I just would like you to meet the prisoners. And they were all looking at the door, see who was walking in it. Will all prisoners please stand? And all of a sudden, goes, oh my God, I'm sitting there's a prisoner. And it was a shocking reality, you know, an awareness that they had that these are regular people. Yeah. These are daddies and mommies and brothers and sisters and fathers and sons. And very humanizing. Yeah, it was, very, it was a very important message. And uh, we, uh, people became completely, it, it was like an immediate change re- reaction that changed their whole perspective. And that one, just that one action. And do you ever wonder what it was about you that said, I'm going to step forward? You know, no one else was listening. Well, yeah, I think the Rebbe, you know, he always know the Rebbe was talking to me, so to speak. <laughs> I felt that. And, uh, you know, I, I'm a shliach. And my objective is to bring more holiness into the world. And uh, I uh, was very thankful to the Rebbe. I had a thank God, a very intense relationship with the Rebbe. And when he said that, I said, I can't let this just pass by. Well, you certainly didn't, and, and uh, you certainly did quite a bit with it. I imagine nowadays, it sounds like probably the olive probably takes up more of your time than the, than the, than the shul, I would imagine. Uh, not, not, not really. It's not really in the shul. I've had more in personal interaction Olive, but you know, staffing, but right basically, uh, in my role, I'm involved in general direction of Olive important decisions because I have you know excellent staff people. But it's true, like uh, the shul when we first called it the shul, the, the, yeah, we described the story. He said you wanted to have the right name that wouldn't alienate anyone, right? And then, uh, it was like, and people said to me, you know, why don't you call it the temple or congregation? A guy came to me, he was a very powerful man of the community. He actually established one of these cities. And he says, come on, you can't call it. It's too, it's like a shtetl. shtetl it's, yeah. like, it's like a fiddler on the roof. Kind oh, of thing. <laughs> Today they're saying, who right gave you the right to call the shul? The shul, shul right? <laughs> <laughs> How the world comes around. <laughs> it's content that creates perspective, not externality. Right. Did you have philosophical concept behind Olive? Yes. Our concept is that God created each human being with the capacity to fulfill their lives. And here they were put into, they're alive and not alive, so to speak. They can't uh, raise their children. They can't deal with their families. They can't be productive. 
And it's like putting a person to sleep for 10 years or 20 years without any kind of benefit society, only massive cost to society. And I said that was not only a waste, but it was a cruel kind of a punishment. And so the Aleph, what represents, I guess, God, but also each individual is a unique soul? It represents the fact that just from a humanitarian point of view, you can't close a person off from fulfilling some kind of meaningful purpose in their existence. Because otherwise, it just becomes a nihilistic kind of uh, of existence. That's not really what gives a person meaning in life. And meaning and purpose are so fundamental that in the last cardiac study, uh, New York published study, one of five factors that influence heart health is meaning and purpose. Stress, genetics, exercise, diet, diet, and meaning and purpose for valves, for arteries, etc. So that's the basic story. You know, we, I can probably sit here and... We can go for many hours, yes, but you're a busy man, and I'm on vacation with my family, so if I don't get back to them, I'm going to find myself needing olive services <laughs> locked up somewhere. But uh, Rabbi Lipsker, founder of the Shul at Bell Harbor, which I'm here sitting in right now, and also the Olive Institute, this just magnificent organization that is, does so much good for the most marginalized in our society, as well as those serving our society in the military. Thank you so much for all you do, and, and thank you for joining us. And thank you for taking time to uh, elucidate the public on uh, some important work. As I said to you, we have a large staff, but uh, for every staff person, we have uh, three volunteers. Amazing. I hope some of our listeners will Google Olive and find the website. Yeah, in fact, we need volunteers for, we do have pen pal program. Okay. It operates through the office so people don't have any private information, you know, because right. that's sometimes you don't want to have, because the pen pal goes to everybody, even guys in, on death row. Got it. Because a human being is a human being. It needs some aspect of connection to humanity. Okay, there we go. So Rabbi Lipsker heeded the call in 1981. Let's see if some of our listeners can heed the call in 2021 to get involved. Thank you so, so much. God bless you. Thank you.